Hey guys, and welcome to season three of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savia Rox, and in this season, I get to make my guests laugh, cry, and even make them think about life a little differently with the questions I fire over to them, which digs into their lives and professions a little differently. We even had a chance to change up the intro, giving you a fresh new sound. I look forward to sharing season three of the Us People podcast with you. Let's go. Hi, I'm Dave Blue, and I'm an author, an entrepreneur, an advisor, someone who worked on Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and a little bit of Hollywood. I'm so excited to be on today's podcast with Savia Rocks. It's uh, an honor to be on here. Made up my mind, now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the SPP Podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I am humbled to have Dave here with me. Dave is a 30-year veteran of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. He's also an advisor, author, entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. Dave, thank you so much for taking your time to come on the Ask People podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, and thanks again for having me on your show. No, you're more than welcome. I'm so happy to have you on. I was excited. I was here early, and I thought, yep, it's time to do this interview. So, Dave, my first question, which I love to ask all my guests that come on the show, is could you tell me about yourself, but also where you grew up and how that influenced you to be the person who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in the United States, but I actually grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, my family moved back to Hong Kong uh, a few years after I was born. So I grew up in Hong Kong during the 1970s and uh, early 80s, uh, which was a really great time to be there. Uh, Hong Kong was going through a transformation into becoming uh, one of the Asian tigers, if you will, one of the uh, cities and countries that uh, was really an economic miracle. And uh, during the period that I was there, it went from really a uh, trading entry pot city into a financial powerhouse and became really the gateway into mainland China for a lot of companies. And so I would say from a business and career standpoint, I was really influenced by seeing the power of entrepreneurship. My father was an entrepreneur. He started a light manufacturing business where he made electronics and uh, Game Boys and uh, electronic calculators. And even at a very young age, I learned business from him. I used to go to his office and I would actually work in the factory making uh, like electronics uh, when I was a young boy. Um, and, you know, I saw the, frankly, the struggles of also being an entrepreneur, the challenges around managing your business and managing cash flow. So I would say that from a uh, career standpoint, that early formative years before I went to college really gave me a sense of the uh, economic engine of the country, as well as the uh, firsthand experience of seeing what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Um, and influenced me throughout my career life uh, from that point onward. Um, from a uh, demographic standpoint, I was privileged to grow up in an environment where I was not the minority. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, the vast majority of people in Hong Kong uh, kind of look like me um, of Asian descent. And even though I have a Chinese father and a Filipino mother, um, I blended in largely because of my ethnicity. And so when I came to America uh, to study and to work, I didn't really know what it felt like to be treated any differently and frankly, differently from the majority in power until I got to the U.S. Um, and so that was a very enlightening experience for me because it allowed me to kind of juxtapose the experience of going from an environment where I was part of the majority to an environment where I was now part of the minority yeah. and suffered from you know all the biases and the challenges that you have when you're a minority um, in, in, a, in an organization. So I would say that those are probably the two biggest uh, compelling um, experiences that I had growing up that, that shaped me into the person I am today. And after I left Hong Kong, I came to the U.S. and I studied here and ultimately made my career here and um, have gone back to, to Asia many, many times for business and for family, but uh, have now spent close to two thirds of my life in America and one third in Asia. That's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely amazing that you could do all that stuff. Even in my first question, you've covered so much in what you've done and where you've grown up. But my second question goes a little bit deeper into who you are, Dave, which is who do you see when you look in the mirror? And on the flip side of that question, have you ever looked in the mirror and not recognised the person staring back at you? How did you manage to come back and be the person who you want to be and who you are right now? Yeah, so it's interesting that you use the object and metaphor of looking in the mirror because that probably is the single thing that really, you know, emphasized to me that uh, I wasn't like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and not necessarily a good way. Aww. So I was born with a very severe uh, birth difference. I was born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. And uh, for... The people that aren't familiar with that, what that is, is essentially parts of your face are not fused correctly at birth. And so you're born with clefts and holes in your face. And in my situation, I was born with a, a massive hole in the center of my face. And what that resulted in is the need for about 11 surgeries and a lifetime of treatment uh, in the hospital and in and out of the hospital up until the age of 18. So... These are pretty serious uh, surgeries. Surgeries generally are serious in general, but when they deal with the craniofacial elements of us, it, they can be quite serious. So it wasn't, frankly, something that was easy to uh, endure, but it really taught me a lot about um, endurance and uh, grit and just being uh, frankly tough and learning how to deal with adversity and dealing with a certain roll of the dice. Um, and unfortunately the challenge when you're growing up is that the uh, birth difference that I had is highly visual. So when I looked in the mirror, it was pretty obvious to me that, uh, what I would see is what other people would see, which would be a heavily scarred, uh, boy, young man. And, um, Unfortunately, the challenge with that is you end up being a little bit like a walking car crash. 
Uh, people can't stop uh, staring at you, you know, and they don't, I don't think they necessarily mean uh, that when they stare at you, but you know, it's just kind of one of those things where people look at you and they wonder, Hmm, did this uh, boy, you know, get in a car crash? Did he get in a knife fight? Uh, what's the history behind uh, this boy? And so I would say that um, that experience was both a blessing and a curse. The a blessing is that I think it made me really, really tough. It made me uh, realize that the person looking back at me um, needs to be tough and needs to look out for themselves and figure out their own way in this world. Because the curse part of it is that you constantly feel alone, frankly. You feel uh, like an outsider. Um, it's actually quite similar, I think, to the way you feel when you're a minority. Uh, in an environment where everybody else is different from you and you're the only one that sticks out. You're the only woman in a room full of guys or you're the only person of color in a room full of Caucasian people. Um, I think there's definitely some similarities to it. And so I would say that the person looking back at me um, was someone who felt uh, somewhat like an outsider, a constant outsider, despite the fact that I grew up in an environment where the vast majority of people were the same ethnicity, I still felt like an outsider. Um, but it also helped me become a really resilient, self-reliant. And that really helped me a lot through my career. Because one of the things I've learned now, having been on this planet for almost 50 years and having spent you know, a good 30 of those in corporate America and rising the corporate ladder is that as you go up the ladder, the stakes get exponentially higher, yes. which also means that the uh, the stress and the challenges that you will face will actually get uh, worse and more difficult, not easier as you go higher. And so I think that having a, a tough exterior uh, resiliency really helps a lot in weathering the challenges. And I think that my upbringing, uh, that boy I looked at in the mirror all those years ago, I think that really helped me uh, and propelled me throughout my career. That's a really good way of looking at life. I definitely feel that because there are so many things in life that people go through and don't necessarily, because one of the questions I do ask people is sometimes, what is the hardest question you've ever had to ask yourself while looking in the mirror? Do you feel like you could answer that, Dave, in a sense of sometimes we look in the mirror and we say to ourselves, there are things we need to change about ourselves. But has there ever been a time after doing all you have done and all you have been through, have you ever looked in the mirror and said a question to yourself that you know that you might not like the answer to, but you had to answer it to help you evolve as a person? What was the question and how did you help yourself to evolve? I would say that the, the question that, I, I grapple with even now, but a lot less than when I was younger is the question of, is this all there is? Yeah. And I think that when I was growing up and I had challenges, uh, you know, all the challenges you have as an adolescent and then more so because of my birth difference, uh, I was also uh, very obese. I wasn't athletic. Um, the only thing I was actually pretty good at was I was pretty good at taking tests. So I was pretty good at school. But I was pretty much terrible at everything else. Um, I would say that 
growing up, I always wondered, hey, is this is this all there is, right? Is it, you know, I'm going to be good at make, taking tests. And so maybe one day, you know, I'll work in some lab somewhere and do tests for, for a living, right? That doesn't sound very fulfilling right now, but maybe that's all there is. And then when I started my career, I was a really good junior person. Mm. I was really good at um, doing spreadsheets and presentations and making sure there are no typos, you know, all the, all the stuff that you want like a junior person to be good at. But I wasn't extroverted in any way. I wasn't a good speaker. I wasn't a good presenter. I didn't have any gravitas. And I saw that particularly in the career I chose, which was working on Wall Street, that those are the superpowers that get you up the corporate ladder. And I didn't have any of those. And so I think early in my career, I also wondered, hey, am I on a a path to basically uh, get jettisoned in middle management? Am I on a path where this is all there is? (laughs) You know, I'm going to I'm going to work my tail off for a couple of years, make a little bit of money, but I'm never going to get to the top because I don't have what these other people have, these other capabilities that I, I don't have, and I'm not even sure how I'm going to get them. And so I would say that the, the question that gnawed at me for uh, a long, long time, you know, probably until my mid-20s, uh, I would say, was, is, is, is this all there is for me? Yeah. And then I think as I, as I grew up in my career and I did progress and I was uh, one of the fastest ever to be promoted at my firm, uh, and I can go into more detail as to yeah. you know what did I do. Um, I think that question started to uh, become less prominent in my thinking. Um, but there's definitely times where you know I might uh, you know retire from you know a career on Wall Street and then become an entrepreneur and become an investor, and then I I still ask that question: Hey, is it? Is, is this all there is? And then what I do is I try to use that actually to challenge me, you know, to, to, to become a writer, to become an author, right? To, to explore becoming a film producer, right? These other things that I've never done before, but I, I feel that as a human being, that's one way that I can keep growing by constantly challenging myself and answering that question, is this all there is? The answer is no. <laughs> there, no, absolutely not, right? And, and you need to think about you, Dave, you need to think about, how you make sure that the answer to that question is no. Uh, and so it drives me in a, in a, in an interesting way now, whereas I think it, I, it, it almost was a little bit of a, something that could defeat me when I was younger. Now it, it really drives me forward as I'm older. I think you believed in yourself from a very young age and asking yourself that question helped you to believe in yourself, helped you, like you say, to give yourself that push, that drive, that motivation to be who you are and where you are today. And without that, Dave, I don't necessarily think that you would be the person who you are today, which is so important. I would love for people to know more about what you do on Wall Street. Everybody has this big perception, and I'm sure you know this, about Wall Street from watching movies and and so on and so forth, reading books, as we all know. Yeah, but from your perception of working in Wall Street for over 30 years or being in it for 30 years, what is the truth, if you're allowed to tell, of Wall Street and just declare people's perceptions in their mind of what Wall Street is and what Wall Street actually does? Yeah, so I will say that the answer to that question is actually a very profound question to ask and also a very profound answer to answer as early as possible in your career. Because 
I will say that having worked on Wall Street, worked in Silicon Valley, uh, dabbled in Hollywood, I will tell you that I find that the vast majority of young professionals don't even know to ask that question and don't know the answer to that question. And there's a lot of people who join a firm, uh, uh, embark on a career, and they just read the brochure where, or they hear what the company tells them is the job. And then when they go into the job, they realize, oh my gosh, this is actually not what I thought it was. And I've seen that time and time again. And I do think that that contributes to a little of the, uh, you know, disappointment that many of us have in our careers. So going back to your question, what I like to think about is what actually do you do on a daily basis? And I think that's one of the best questions that any interviewee can ask a prospective uh, hirer, prospective manager. It's like, put aside all the stuff I see on the internet or uh, people talk about, because everyone likes to embellish their job, right? Everyone likes to talk about how they're involved in strategic decision-making and uh, changing the world type stuff, right? And, and that's all great. Uh, that, I think that actually is more advertising. I think what matters is, but what do you exactly do? Exactly. And so with Wall Street, it's really interesting. You know, Wall Street is, a, is an aggregation of lots of different types of jobs. But what I will hone in on is the job that I had, which was really being a banker, uh, which is, I think, what most people think of when they think about Wall Street. Yeah. And my overarching uh, purpose as a banker uh, was to be part of a team that would essentially help clients get liquidity. And what I mean by that is that we would help companies uh, raise capital, raise cash, raise money, or we'd help sell their businesses. And to me, that's fundamentally what uh, Wall Street is about. Wall Street is about providing liquidity to companies, providing cash resources to companies. Now, when you double click on what do you do as a junior person on Wall Street, as a banker, uh, I would say that fundamentally, you, you become an expert in two things. One is you become a Excel god. So you become someone that knows how to manipulate spreadsheets really well. Mm-hmm. And you become a disciple of PowerPoint. You become really good at making uh, presentations. And so as, as, a, as a sidebar, when I was really young, uh, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Yes. I wanted to draw pictures, funny stories, things like that. And I, I like to joke that when I was a junior banker, I essentially became a cartoonist because what I specialized in was making fancy presentations with a lot of pictures and uh, images <laughs> to convince people to invest or buy a company. And so at the at the very junior level, um, you are an Excel god and a PowerPoint junkie. That's really what you're really good at. <laughs> and, and they don't they don't say that, you know, when you, they're trying to recruit you because that doesn't sound very sexy, right? <laughs> that, that, that actually sounds kind of boring, but but that's fundamentally what you do as a junior person. Yeah. Now, as you as you go up the corporate ladder to the senior banker, which is what I was uh, when I before I retired from the business, I would say that despite all of the movies you might have watched or the way managing directors and heads of Wall Street and Masters of the Universe describe themselves, I say fundamentally what you are is you're a salesman or a saleswoman. Yes. You're basically selling every day. And so that's really the superpower. It's you're selling and part of selling is developing relationships, getting people to trust you, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if they're 
going to have you raise money for their company or sell their company, you're essentially the nanny. You're the person that's going to help shepherd their baby along and help them monetize it or get liquidity for it. And in order for you to engender their trust as a senior banker on Wall Street, uh, you need to develop relationships and you need to know how to sell like there's no tomorrow. And so to answer your question, there's there's obviously a continuum, but when you start your career on Wall Street, you're an Excel and PowerPoint person. And then when you get to the top, you're really a master salesman. Yes. And there, there's a there's a long uh, arc and transition that needs to occur because those are very different roles. And uh, frankly, a lot of people of color, I think, uh, are really good at the at the junior level work, but then they don't know how to adapt and play the game to get to the master salesperson role. Yeah. And that's really the art of managing your career and, and rising the corporate ladder. That's really mad that you actually said that. Now that I'm thinking about it, it is quite true from what I've seen and what I watch, obviously being in the corporate world and having to work in the corporate world, which I have done. I see how people climb up the ladder of different nationalities and cultures, but I embrace that. And for me, I'm always actually the only colored one there. <laughs> so it's actually quite intriguing and it helps me to evolve, especially when I'm doing something. So I'm so glad that you answered that the way you did. But the beautiful thing about that is, Dave, is that more and more people are starting to understand it and climb up that ladder. And you're one of the prime people to actually say that, which is perfect. So thank you so much for answering that the way you did. My next question for you is you've worked for so many companies, Dave, you know, like you say, helping them get equity, go on a ladder, become what they need to become, establish themselves as a company. But what is the most humbling thing you have ever done from working with all these companies that you feel has humbled you as a person? Oh, you know, it just working with companies and dealing with the trials and tribulations of having to deal with the process of helping them raise money or sell their company is just a humbling experience in of itself because you you might go from one day or i i went from one day where you know i would sell a company for over a billion dollars and feel like wow i'm the man <laughs> I, I am amazing like there is nothing uh, better than me. Like I, I, I'm just, you know, the Michael Jordan of my profession and I'm really good at this. And then the next day I might have a client call me up and just rip me a new one because some a deal fell through or some investor pulled out and they'll, they'll say I'm, I'm the worst banker they ever had there. You're, you're the, you're a terrible uh, negotiator. You don't know what you're doing. And that's, that's incredibly humbling. And I think that when I had a career as a senior banker, I think it's probably the closest that I've ever gotten to professional sports. Yeah. I think that I when that. you uh, play at that level and the stakes are so high mm -hmm. and everyone tends to be pretty good at what they do at that level, there will, there will be days where you do amazing and you will feel like you're the goat. You're the greatest of all time. And there's nobody that, can replace you and the firm should pay you a ton of money. And then there are other days where you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm not very good at this or uh, I'm easily replaceable. 
And I better work my tail off because somebody else wants my job or can take my job or my firm might want to replace me. So I would say that the high stakes nature of dealing with M&A and IPOs and financings is such that there are days where you are incredibly proud and there I say a little arrogant about the value you bring. And then there are days where you're incredibly humbled because something just blew up in your face. And I think that you have to be mentally ready for that because I, I'm not sure everybody can go through those kind of roller coasters. Um, but going back to my uh, upbringing, I think that uh, upbringing of mine kind of helped me go through those roller coasters where there'll be great days and there'll be terrible days. So I would say that in my in my years as a as a senior person, um, almost every other day was a humbling experience because uh, let's face it when you are dealing with these very high pressured, uh, high value situations. Um, it only takes one or two things to go wrong and they evaporate. And so you're kind of doing a high wire act with, with no net when you're dealing with uh, very large transaction possibilities. And that can be a very humbling thing when you fall off that wire and you splatter yeah. on the ground. That's definitely true. It's definitely true. There's one I would love to ask. So for a second, Dave, I'm going to strip away all the financial security that you have. And I'm going to strip away all your titles. One question I want to ask you, who is Dave without all of this? Who are you really inside? Who do you feel you are? And how would you like to share that with us? You know, I'm I'm a purpose-driven person, and I think that I I don't know the meaning of life, and I, I I think that we all have a different meaning of life. But for me, I think of myself as part of a whole, and I think that my goal here is to advance uh, humanity, maybe a micromillimeter like just a, just a, in a small way in some possibility. And in many ways, uh, a lot of what I've done up until this point and have continued to continue to do uh, going forward are all just foundational building blocks towards some greater purpose, some greater goal. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I, I think I do have a sense of what it is and uh, what, what I've been trying to do uh, in this second half of my life, if you will, is to focus on amplifying and helping uh, the Asian American community, because that's yes. one that is very uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, and so I've been focused on everything from, um, you know, career advice through the writing of my book and pledging all the proceeds from my book to charity, pr primarily Asian American charities. Uh, it's also about uh, helping to report the news that's important to the Asian American community by uh, being uh, a sponsor and vice chairman of AsiaAmNews.com, which is a leading website for Asian American news, as well as helping drive more representation in media by uh, helping and financing uh, production and TV and Broadway production companies uh, run by and founded by Asian Americans. Um, and so I think, I think if you strip everything away, I think my goal is really to advance things 
uh, that are important to me and I think hopefully are important to all of us as human beings, uh, you know, a couple millimeters, you know, maybe <laughs> by the time I leave this planet. Um, and that's what I'm really driven by. I've never really been driven to make a lot of money. I've never really been driven to amass titles or power. I've always viewed that as just kind of part of the foundational building blocks to get me to this point where I am now. And I'm definitely in a mode where I'm focused on giving back and trying to help the community any way I can. I love that. Not many people do do that, Dave. Believe me, a lot of people get to a level of success and then they actually forget where they come from, which is actually quite disappointing. And I'm so glad there are people in the world like yourself who do do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a big believer in irony. And when you look at, for instance, storytelling and film and movie, usually what we as human beings actually gravitate towards are those stories that are ironic, that yes. have, a, have a paradox of some type in them. And if you, if you stop and think about you know, this, this overall need of ours to, um, you know, advance ourselves in some way, fundamentally, we are walking paradox. We are a walking uh, ironic story, which is in many ways, if you want to be successful, um, and I think a lot of people are like this, frankly, if you want to be really successful, then you, you can't ever be satisfied. Because if you're satisfied, then you stop growing. You stop pursuing that, uh, that title, that compensation, uh, that skill, that new industry that um, can really help you and propel you. But then fundamentally, I think the secret to happiness is actually being satisfied, <laughs> you know, to be, to be happy with what you have, right? And not focus on what the Joneses have or the neighbors have, or uh, what your, that, that person you graduated school with, you know, how far are they in their career and how do you benchmark yourself? So I think that's fundamentally one of the challenges that we have because they're, they're diametrically opposed forces, right? There's part of you that says, don't ever be happy. Don't ever be satisfied. And you're going to keep growing and growing and growing and, and you'll, you'll advance yourself. But then there's the other part of you, which is like, you know, to, to be happy, you got to be satisfied. You, you can't worry so much about what you don't have. Right. And I think that's fundamentally the, the irony, if you will, of what we all face. And I try to balance that. Like I try to, I try to think about, okay, what are the things that I need to continue to do that I'm not satisfied with about myself, right? But keep that within certain bounds so I don't drive myself nuts worrying about what other people think of me or what my classmates are doing um, with their careers. Um, and it's, it's challenging, but I think the, the much like the, the uh, you know, the Eastern uh, philosophy, the yin and the yang, you know, the opposites, uh, being part of the whole. Uh, I think that's fundamentally the secret to finding purpose. It's like finding that right balance for yourself where you are both satisfied and unsatisfied and, and you yes. have a happy equilibrium. I think, which actually leads on to my next question. When was the last time you felt, Dave, that you were actually felt like you had peace in your soul? You know, I... I'm not sure I've ever really had true peace uh, in my soul. I think when I think back, the the early parts of my life were were definitely tough. Uh, you know, not only because of uh, my my health issues, but also uh, when I was in college, uh, we didn't have any money. I was at poverty, and I was uh, running scared. I needed to 
make sure that I could have a lucrative career where I could not only support myself, but also support my family and not worry about having food to eat. And yeah. I would say that that really drove me in the early part of my career. It was, it was fear. It was fear of not having enough money to support myself and my family. And Wall Street seemed like a really good place to uh, at least cover the basis in a relatively short amount of time. And it was also a career path that I knew I was pretty good at the junior level. And I started to develop skills around the, the things that were required to, to ascend the corporate ladder. Um, but then when, when I got to uh, 40, um, you know, I'm not sure I was at peace then either because I was, uh, I was certainly much more financially secure and I was able to retire. Um, but I, I always felt that there was a little bit of an unfulfilled goal of mine, which was to be a great dad, um, to also uh, be an entrepreneur. Um, and so I, I kind of scratched that itch, you know, and, I, and obviously with my boys uh, being a dad, that, that's an itch that never goes away. Right. You know, it's both a, yeah. uh, it's, it's the toughest job in the world, but it's also the most amazing one. Um, and I try to be as good a dad as I can every day. Um, the entrepreneurial itch kind of started to go away after, you know, I, I started my fourth company and uh, I felt, okay, I, I kind of know this playbook. I, I think um, I can be a decent entrepreneur and, and I kind of know what it takes. Um, and so I think I became more at peace with the uh, elements of my life that uh, I think historically I felt I couldn't do. And I felt now I can do that. Um, yeah. But I, I think that if you're, it's a little bit, it goes back to my original point about the, the, um, the paradox of like, you know, happiness versus growth, right? It's okay. like, you know, one, one requires you to be satisfied. The other requires you to be not satisfied. And I think I'm, I'm at an equilibrium and I'm not sure that you can ever truly find peace unless you find peace in chaos. <laughs> and <laughs> That's uh, true. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely more peaceful now than I've ever been in my life. Uh, I, I, I like the balance of what I'm doing on the entrepreneurial side, as well as uh, the creative side. Um, but um, I, I can't tell you like I'm, I'm at enlightenment yet. <laughs> that, that might still be a long way away. You never know. It might be around the corner. Sometimes we don't realize things are in front of us. It's just that sometimes we don't see it. But that's the beautiful journey of life is not always seeing the end of the tunnel. So that's kind of how I see life. My next one for you, Dave, is let's talk about your book. You decided to write a book. You said to me at first that you didn't feel necessarily that you were always creative you know, and that you were really good at doing tests and so on and so forth. But in my mind, from listening to your story from the beginning, from where we started to where we are now, I feel like you have a lot of creativity within you. Creativity is defined in so many different ways. And I think sometimes people just think creativity is within music or within arts, and that's not necessarily true. Creativity could be within finance, just like you've done, because you do have to get very creative when you're doing sales, when you're being the junior, when you're when you're doing spreadsheets. All these things are really quite creative. And I taught myself this and I learned this. But when you decided to write a book, where was your mindset at for you to turn around and say, I'm going to do this. This is something that I need to do. This is something that I want the world to read, to understand. Yeah, so it really did not start off to be a book at all. It started off with me writing down all the things that I wish someone had taught me about 
rising the corporate ladder. Yeah. And I had the privilege of going to two of the top business schools in the world. And I've also had countless hours of HR and leadership training. And I will tell you that nobody, nowhere did I ever learn anything that actually helped me scale the corporate ladder. I learned a lot of the uh, traditional frameworks and uh, ways to talk to people, but nothing really prepared me for uh, getting to the, to the upper echelons of management uh, on Wall Street. And so I do fundamentally believe that a big part of the unhappiness uh, that we all experience is due to work because many of us spend the vast majority of our lives at work. And being a, a doting father and someone that cares about my two boys a lot, I started to, to write down all the things that helped me in my career uh, into what I joke was a manifesto. Uh, it was probably 50 pages of bullet points and uh, just ideas, uh, tactics. And I started to write all this down with the goal that one day I would give it to them, perhaps you know, at their graduation from college and say, hey, here, here's a whole bunch of tactics that work for your old man long, long time ago. Um, just read through it and there might be a few that'll work for you. And there, there would be stuff in there from, you know, how did I negotiate my compensation? How did I position myself to get the promotion? How did I conduct myself in meetings? How did I learn the, the language of that industry? Uh, all these things that, again, like I haven't found any other resource for this stuff that's highly practical. And that was really the, the net of my, uh, my goal, which was to kind of get this thing at a point before uh, I forgot everything and, and give it to my boys. And what happened during the pandemic, um, I started talking to a few friends of mine and we were just catching up. You know, we were all trapped on Zoom and we say, hey, what's going on? What are you up to? And I said, you know, I'm uh, in the middle of uh, dealing with one of my companies, but I'm also kind of brushing up this manifesto I've been writing for years, like with just ideas and thoughts. And so one of my uh, good friends who's an author um, was, was actually quite curious and said, hey, can you send over your, your manifesto? Let me take a look. And I said, yeah, sure. You can take a look at it if you like. I sent it over to him. He looked at it and he called me back and said, hey, man, like th this could be a really good book. <laughs> th this could actually help a lot of people, not just your boys, but this, this could help people that feel underrepresented. Uh, in the workforce, people that feel like the workforce is rigged against them and they don't know the unwritten rules. They don't know how to manage the shadow org chart, not the org chart, but the shadow one that we all know companies have. Um, and so I started to think about, well, you know, I've never written a book before. It, it, it seems like a gargantuan task from everything I've seen, but I started to think about it. And uh, fundamentally, I decided, you know what, like, you know, we're all kind of trapped at home anyway. Um, Maybe I'll maybe I'll actually ex exercise some of those creative muscles and actually write down these ideas. And so uh, I'd say the linchpin ultimately was that I determined that I could turn it into a philanthropic project. So I figured, okay, on the one hand, just spreading the ideas could help a lot of people. And um, I'm not I'm not a paid author. I don't uh, I have no interest in charging for speaking or any of that stuff. So. I figured that, okay, if I can memorialize all my ideas, perhaps I could, you know, talk to, um, you know, various communities of uh, people of color, uh, women's groups, you know, anybody looking for, you know, just some more advantages uh, in the workforce. I could talk to them and share some of these ideas and maybe make the world a little bit less of a, a, 
you know, uh, the workforce a little less depressing by helping people advance themselves. Um, and then um, if the book was even moderately successful, then there might be some royalties that I could then, you know, donate to charity and, and amplify the message of those charities. Um, and so that, that fundamentally was the reason why I decided to put pen to paper and write down everything. Um, it, I'm so happy I did it. it. It did exercise a lot of my creative muscles that have been dormant for more than 30 years. Uh, and I got to not only write in, in my style of writing, which is a little more irreverent and sarcastic right. and something that you don't normally find in a career book. Uh, in fact, my publisher, Wiley, uh, told me like they've never published a career book like this, which is you know meant to be irreverent and funny, not frankly... Uh, kind of more prescriptive and more textbook like. Uh, and then I made sure that every chapter was written in a way that I wish I had every book written the same way. Yeah. So every chapter begins with a cartoon and ends with bullet points. Uh, and what I tell people is that uh, it's a 300 page book, it's 30 chapters, but you uh, don't have to spend a lot of time reading it. What you What I would do is I would read the cartoon in the beginning of every chapter. I would read the bullet points at the end. That'll take you 30 seconds. And if there's enough in the cartoon and the bullet points to pique your interest, then read the chapter. Otherwise, just skip yes. it and don't worry about it. And so um, I'm really glad that I, I did it. Um, you know, I've been able to, uh, because the, the book has actually done very well, you know, a couple of bestseller awards and, uh, you know, ranked by Bloomberg is one of the best books of 2021. Um, you know, I've been able to donate uh, a, a not insignificant amount of money to various charities. And the uh, is not so much the money, but being able to amplify the message of those charities has also been really rewarding. So um, I know I know I went a little longer than your intention on. No, that question. I love it. No, I loved it. Yeah, I, I just uh, it was it was something that I didn't intend to do, but I'm so happy I did it. I can see when somebody is passionate about what they do, Dave. And listening to you and every single question I ask you and the answers that you give me back, I can feel your energy of how passionate you are about what you do, where you've come from, but also giving back to the community. And I hope, you know, I'm proud of you and I don't even, <laughs> I've only been on here with you for a little while, but I'm proud of you because of what you do. I know there are loads of people like us in the world who want to give back to people but we're making a change. And even if you say like it's a millimeter or centimeter or an inch, it doesn't matter. Put that all together and we'll be doing meters of giving back to the world. So keep doing what you're doing, Dave. It's so important. It's so, so important. My next one for you, Dave, is if there was a question you wish that people asked you, but they never really do, what would that question be and why? There, there, the one question that I don't get asked enough, uh, and I think is really the one of the key questions, particularly young people should ask, is what would you say is the most important skill or uh, thing to, to learn and train uh, in order to be successful in your career? And I think that it goes to, frankly, a lot of what I write in my book, but I think it just comes down to understanding human psychology and understanding how people think and understand their motivations mm -hmm. so that you can build incentives 
for them to help you uh, or for you to help them. And I think one of the challenges, and, and, and frankly, I, I'll speak as an Asian American, I think Asian Americans aren't as well attuned to this. You, you aren't told that. In fact, you're rarely told that growing up. Yeah. What you're told is that just work hard, get good grades, uh, do the best job you can, don't play politics, don't worry about what other people are doing, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, that works at the junior level. That is so far from the truth at the senior level. That's not the way the world works. The way the way the world works is that in order to get ahead in your career, more than 99% of the time, unless you are a solitary writer in a cabin in the woods, you are part of a team. And you need to figure out how to motivate your team. And you need to figure out what motivates them. And by studying human psychology and some of the, the uh, more uh, specific categories like cognitive bias and behavioral economics and some of these other fields that I cover in quite depth in my book, and also I've studied for quite a long time, what you, what you learn is that people are fundamentally irrational, that people don't act the way you expect them to. And I think the earlier you figure that out in your career, I think the better you will be. And I'm not talking just about career, actually. I, I think just in life in general. Um, I always like to think that when, you know, I see some behavior that seems really irrational, you know, whether it be uh, political or uh, economic, I, I, what I do is rather than just dismiss that person as being a bonehead, and saying like, oh, this guy or gal is just a fool. They, they don't know what they're doing. I, what I try to do is I really try to get to the heart of um, what's motivating that behavior? Like what, what is the fundamental driver? And I think as human beings, if we spent more time really digging deeper into each of our individual motivations, then I do think that we will better understand each other. And we also will be able in the corporate setting, be able to better uh, navigate and uh, motivate and manage people the way we need them to in order to help us or help our career. So I'm I would so say that's probably that. the one question that I don't get asked enough. And, and I wish more young people would ask me that because uh, notice I didn't say things like, oh, you need to learn these four by four matrices or you need yeah. to you know, get really good at math or you need to you know make sure that you memorize Wikipedia. No, none of that. I actually don't think any of that stuff really matters at the end of the day. I think what matters most is, again, unless you are a solitary producer in the woods somewhere, you don't have to work with anybody. I think it's really understanding what motivates people and understanding the fact that we're all irrational and we do things that are seemingly irrational for, for a whole bunch of reasons that research has, has shown us. And the key is to, to really figure out how you then harness that to, to advance your career or advance your goals. I'd be really interested to know, Dave, what is the best advice you've ever received that's helped you in your life? You know, the best advice I've ever gotten, I've gotten this advice, many, frankly, many times, but um, one of my mentors was the CEO of my firm. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he actually wasn't a person of color. He's a Caucasian man. And he, he ended up taking a liking to me. And uh, he, he became my mentor. Um, he also helped me with recommendations to business school, and he even even uh, read my book and endorsed my book, which which went a long way in giving me credibility. Right when the CEO of the firm that you rose corporate ladder uh, endorses your book, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I'd say that the the one piece of advice that he gives everybody, but but it really stuck out at me because when uh, when I was a young person, I went to his office. He had uh, this this uh, picture on his desk, and it was uh, essentially of dinosaurs. And below were some words, and it said "adapt or die." Very simple, adapt or die. And that has really resonated with me throughout my entire career. I I think that if you're not adapting, you're dying. And True. in the in the world we're in now, even more so, where the velocity of change seems to be accelerating, where frankly, a lot of the capabilities and skills that you think you have and nobody else has um, is being disseminated at lightning speed now through the internet, through YouTube videos, through uh, tutorials. Um, a lot of the advantages that you may have today are very ephemeral and will dissipate in, in short order. So if you're not adapting, if you're not constantly pushing the envelope of what you can contribute, then there is a potential that um, you may not die, but you certainly can get marginalized. You That's can true. certainly find other people that might be able to do the same thing you claim to do uh, cheaper, faster, uh, maybe with, with, with less uh, you know, aggravation. Um, and so I think that's probably the best piece of advice that I've gotten throughout my career, which is always be adapting. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're dying. And um, that's a mantra that I live by. I love that. I love that. The way you said that. That was perfect. Spot on. Thank you so much, Dave. I only have two more for you before we depart. But my second to last question is, which I love to ask is, after you feel like you have done everything that you possibly can in the world to make it a better place where you feel like you've contributed, what would you like your legacy to be and how would you like people to remember you? You know, I'm, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that yet, but what I would hope people take away is that there, this is one way to uh, live your life. And the way I've lived my life is one of trade-offs. I started my career uh, really all about advancing uh, my economic situation so that I could build a nest egg. And I essentially did the work-life trade-off. I gave up life for work. And I got to a point where I was in my 40s, you know, I had two children at that point where I started to swing the pendulum the other way. And I said, look, the 20s and 30s were all about um, me working really hard, giving up a lot of life. But now it's, it's all about like being there for my two boys and uh, having a much better uh, life and probably less, less on the work side. And um, that's given me the opportunity now to explore lots of things that uh, I've always wanted to do, but uh, never had the opportunity because I was in a client-based business where I needed to be flying around the world and being in front of clients all day long. So I didn't have time to be a dad. I didn't have time to write a book. I didn't have time to explore some of the creative things that I've been doing now, like uh, being a cartoonist. I, I actually have a cartoon strip now, um, yeah. you know, writing uh, career articles, uh, exploring things on the entertainment, film, TV side. Um, those are things I never had any time for. And I'm not saying that that is uh, the right way to live your life, but it's certainly one way to live your life where you 
you dedicate certain parts of your life to uh, your work and building up your economic war chest. And then the second half of your life, you focus on the things that, that you're really interested in and things that matter. Um, th that's just kind of a philosophy of how I've lived my life. And I know there, there are some people who don't agree with that. There are people that believe that um, it's really more about work-life balance and uh, you know, managing a life with both of those as you're, as you're going up. Um, that fundamentally didn't work for me. And I think partly because I was in an environment where, um, you know, ironically, you have the winner's curse, which is uh, in order to get that that top job, which which everybody wants in order to win it, you have to be cursed. You have to be more irrational than everybody else. And most of the time, what that means is you're willing to make more sacrifices than everybody else. And I will tell you, I think I'm kind of the living embodiment of the winner's curse. Like in order for me to get that top job, like I have to sacrifice a lot more than others to get that top job. But um, I also was able to exit stage right, you know, later on. So I, I would say that, you know, I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, a, uh, a whole philosophy around, you know, what, what I've said or uh, how I've lived my life. But I, I would just hope that maybe one of my legacies is that, uh, some people can look at it and go like, oh, okay, this this is actually a, um, an honorable way to live your life, right? You know, you, you, you become good at a trade, you really hone it, and then you get to a point in your life where you can now give back and you can do other things uh, and, and spend more time with your family. Um, and I think I'm very proud of what I've done so far and I hopefully will continue to do going forward. I think you will. I think there's a lot more to you that maybe you might even shock yourself with. I definitely think so. Dave, before I have the pleasure of thanking you for coming on the show, could you please let everyone know where they can find you, also find your book, know more about you, and if they would like to get in touch with you, where they can find you? Sure. So you can get all that at one spot. Uh, the best way is probably just to go to my website. It's uh, lucrative.com. It's a play on my last name. So it's L-I-U-C-R-A-T-I-V-E.com. Um, there's information about my book, The Way of the Wall Street Warrior, on my site. Uh, you can get the book pretty much anywhere, uh, Amazon. There's a hardback and there's also audiobook available. Um, and if you want to reach out to me, just go to my website. I have places where you can send me a, a message. Uh, I respond to every email uh, request or note I get on there. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from people. I hope that in some way, you know, hearing my story gives you a little inspiration uh, or at least entertains you, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I hope also that if you're interested in advancing your career or maybe helping someone that you know is kind of stuck in a rut and is looking for good career advice, that you know they you suggest that they take a look at my book because I'm hopeful that there there's at least a handful of ideas and tips in there that might be able to help someone. There's always something someone can take away from a book, even if it's a sentence. Even if it's definitely one sentence, Dave, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to come on the Ask People podcast. I want to thank you for your wisdom, your kindness, your compassion, but more than anything else, your honesty. And I think that's a trait that is so humbling. So Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I admire all the work you've done and keep doing what you're doing. I think the more that uh, we can amplify our messages and voices, the better and share the wisdom that we all have. Definitely. Dave, thank you again. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast. And please remember, you can subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and any other platform that you prefer listening to. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also donate to the Ask People podcast by simply going to the Savvy Rocks website or typing in slash us people podcast guys thank you so much for listening stay happy stay positive and as always please continue to be kind to one another It was great. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, you asked some great questions. I know the time's right. Trust in the process. Forget all the losses. You know that it's worth it. Cause nobody's perfect. Sometimes you need to say, I'm gonna be okay. Okay. Made up my mind. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. You let go, time as you let go. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Time as you let go, time as you let go. Now is my time to shine. Enjoy the ride, open those eyes, see the light Ignite that fire inside it, let it breathe breath into life Push all your fears to the side, control your mind It's all alright, enjoy your life, the joy is mine Commit to you, you got the tools, everything you do You make the rules, sometimes